Vodka. 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 Vodka o'clock. Alright. Well, thanks everybody for coming. I think we're just going to get started. Um, this is the first uh, panel in this room for the day, so I appreciate you guys showing up. So, to fill you in on who I am and why we're here, I'm Amber Love. I host the podcast Vodka O'Clock and the website amberunmasked.com. And I write for some other websites like Women Write About Comics and Femsplain. So, and I also write mystery novels. Um, so for the past couple of years, I've kind of just had more time to dedicate my time just to creating things instead of being a regular employee. And that's because of things like Patreon exist now. So, you know, thankfully that's an opportunity for people who can't handle uh, necessarily, you know, two hour commute to a nine to five job and then two hours back. Um, so my friend Joy is here, and I'll let her introduce herself, and then we'll get rolling on our subject about creating while having different abilities and disabilities and things like that. Hi, I'm Joy Tawney. Uh, I'm a professional comic artist as well as a professional body painter, muralist, and illustrator. Um, you can see some of my work on the showroom floor. If you go to Rags Morales' table, he's got some prints that I was the colors for. I digitally painted color into his graphite prints, and they're available for sale. Um, I've also done some assistant and background inking on Sonic Boom, a Sonic the Hedgehog series put out by R2 Comics. Uh, I also illustrated Zombie Power 3 and 4. 4 is coming out very soon. Um, Let's see, I also, um, I will be appearing on the television show Skin Wars Fresh Paint on August 3rd, season finale, hosted by RuPaul. It's very cool, I highly recommend you check it out. And uh, actually, there will be a moment, I can't say too much without spoiling it, but there will be some moments where you see me uh, dealing with some of my physical needs and uh, my disability and doing some accommodations for that, so. Okay, do you want to explain what your um, condition was that you had and when you have it? Sure, I have reflex sympathetic dystrophy. Uh, it's similar to fibromyalgia. It falls under the umbrella of chronic regional pain syndrome type 2. Um, what it is is that my nervous system uh, malfunctions. It reports pain where there is none all the time. It's excruciating. Um, I've been very fortunate to find um, some ways to manage it with frequent physical therapy and exercise. Um, this is the most abled I've ever been in my life right now, and uh, I've been making that happen by being extremely careful about frequently going to the gym, frequently doing everything, and um, I know how lucky I am that I've found a solution that has changed things in my life so much, and I have like this, I, I was severely disabled with this for 12 years from when I was 14 to 26, limited mobility, uh, I left the house a couple times a week, uh, this was part of why I chose freelancing and why I chose art, because even though I would say the hours are longer, you know, you don't really get much uh, work-life separation as a freelancer, um, but I could schedule my hours and cater to my specific needs and take a rest day when I needed one, or if I just had a week wiped out by being sick, there were ways to make that up, because as long as I hit my deadline, it was okay. So, um, you know, I, I feel somewhat qualified to speak on these things. Uh, you know, but um, I also, it, as an invisible disability, there's also like both baggage and privilege that comes with that. That's actually um, one of the areas that I wanted to make sure we hit upon today because Elsa was supposed to be here today, but she got a paying assignment for the weekend. So I'm really happy for her that she's not here today um, because Elsa has a lot of physical disabilities and 
for her, depending on the day, um, she could either need a wheelchair or not need a wheelchair. And um, when she walks, even though her sight is very limited and she walks with a cane, if she's familiar with her surroundings, she can walk pretty quickly and she has her dog next to her usually. So um, it's, she has different experiences day by day based on what other people judge from seeing her. And um, my conditions are completely invisible because I'm here to talk about mental health and what that's done to me, where um, for the past two years, most of my body was like covered in welts and hives where I was basically never wanted to leave my house. I stayed in bed all the time. Um, I, when I came here last year, I made sure I wore an outfit kind of like this where I was completely covered because I didn't want anybody looking at me. And it's hard to do that when you enjoy cosplay because you want people to look at you and admire your outfits. Um, so the, there's um, other just like random pain issues that I've experienced too. If my back goes out, I had to go through New York Comic Con one time with a cane. And when you're doing something like that, just because you hurt yourself and it's not something that's labeled as a disability, then there's a lot of guilt like, oh, I don't deserve this treatment, or I don't deserve the cane, or I don't deserve somebody holding the door for me because I'm, I normally didn't need it. So um, Elsa and I enjoy, and I have talked about, uh, you know, what it means when it's something that's not visible and obvious to other people, and the bias that's there. So um, my boyfriend's here, and he can tell you that I've cried on the train randomly just because of a, pa a panic attack, and it's like, yeah, I'm a fun date. So you know, <laughs> don't take me to New York. Um, and those are just their accommodations, which I'm, I think, uh, I can't remember which convention it is, but some of the conventions now have isolated rooms specifically for people who have either panic episodes or uh, specifically people with, um, usually kids, I think, with autism, certain autism issues, where they need to have quiet areas. Um, I believe DexCon, the gaming con that was last weekend, I believe they have one of those rooms too. And Elsa is actually their disability coordinator, so she's very specific about um, addressing needs for the gaming shows that are here in Morristown. Um, so obviously if anybody has questions about that, you can ask me, because I'll, I'll give you my entire life story if you ask me. Uh, and um, also, it was thankfully in the program that if there's anything traumatic that comes up, if it's a question or if it's something that we say, we just want you to know that you know these are subjects that come up, and if you need to leave the room, that's okay. Um, we're really understanding about that. So, when it comes to things like PTSD, there are different um, symptoms and different treatments based on whether it's a child or an adult. Uh, obviously, that if there's medication involved, there's gonna be differences too. But um, if you're doing any research like that, just remember what you're researching for. If it's for yourself or for a child, or if you're a writer and you're coming up with a character, those are different things that you need to keep in mind too. I gotta say, one of the um, con accommodations, because you know, we were actually just talking a little earlier about how uh, going to conventions can be pretty hard on the body, even as someone who's fully able, but you know, especially for those of us um, with various uh, physical, special needs, whatever, um, with the hard floors and the long walking and so on. And it's like, you know, ADA is great. If a place is ADA compliant, 
that's lovely because so many aren't, but it kind of covers the bare minimum of uh, what is actually needed. And, and that um, also depends on things like the age of the building, if they've yeah. been grandfathered in and don't need to be accessible exactly. Yeah, but something I always get really excited about seeing at cons are the, um, the badges. Have you seen those? The red, green, um, yellow badges, where um, depending on uh, if someone has um, certain, you know, autism or anxiety or something, they can have the badges that tell you, am I approachable? Green is, um, you know, you can come talk to me and so on. You know, yellow and red, you need to, you know, uh, the badge will say, um, you know, various levels of approachability and so on. And just to be able to know that and to be able to, you know, give that person that their space and see that this is actually a growing thing and seeing the badges more frequently just gets me so excited. Like, <laughs> I'm just like, yes, yeah. finally, okay, we're considering um, the attendees and people working here more as like individuals and saying, okay, what are your actual needs rather than, okay, cattle, let's, let's get in here. Right. At a small show like this, um, first of all, it's much more personable. Like you can go up to Dave or Sal or anybody and talk to them and you don't have to, you know, worry about calling them three weeks ago and waiting to hear back. Like they're very, very accessible. So if you ever had any concerns, you can always just shoot them an email or something and they're, they'll respond quickly. Um, and they're also here on the floor. There's uniformed cops on the floor. So this show is, you know, not only a great size, but the people here are really attentive. Whereas a place like New York Comic Con, which I, this is the first year I'm not going, but I've been to almost every New York Comic Con, I think, except for their first year. And I don't understand how people actually get around that show um, in, in wheelchairs, because I was with a friend of mine and she uses a scooter. And so basically it's just like a sea of butts for her. And, um, you know, obviously everybody's situation is, is different, but it was easier for her to be in front of me with me walking because I thought I should be in front of her kind of clearing the path, but it was easier with her in front. Um, and some of the things that conventions need to do is watch their signage. Like where is their signage placed? Is it placed in a way that people can see it? Can they read it easily? Um, now I don't know anybody who does uh, sign language as a translation service, so I don't have anybody here for that, but some conventions have the you know opportunity to have people signing at their panels, which is amazing. But I, I personally don't have somebody to assist with that. Uh, other things that they have are uh, the big projectors, so that people can see. This is a small room, so hopefully everybody can actually understand where we are. Um, elevator access. At least here, you don't have to worry about that. Bigger shows, you do. Um, I don't know if you've tried to catch an elevator at a big show. Oh, no. Um, I wouldn't even make the attempt. Um, and always the elevators are always in the farthest place. from where It's you always the there. farthest place. Um, sometimes, just like at the hotels, they uh, don't treat you like a person, and you have to take a service elevator. And so you're kind of in, an, in a lift with garbage or something, or mops and whatever. Um, and at a show like, you know, at the Javits Center because it gets so crowded, they feel it's a danger to keep the escalators going. So even that particular year when I was walking and had a cane, an escalator would have been fine for me. They turn them off because it's too crowded. And it's the point of using them instead of the stairs. <laughs> so, um, so those are some of the, the challenges and hurdles about just 
trying to have the, the social part of a creative life is with the conventions. So um, I'm certainly doing less. I used to do a lot more. And I mean, as um, as professional artists, especially with the within the arts and entertainment industry, you hear so much about how networking is key, and so much about it's who you know. And it's like if you can't make it to so many of these big events, so many of these big events with, uh, as Amber was saying, these these hurdles, or you know, if you have reasons to avoid crowds for your needs and so on, it's just it makes it so much harder to do something that is really becoming more and more of a necessity for our job. I mean, you can do it online. Um, you know, there's some great ways to, to network online, and I think there's a lot of um, online artists who, because of their inability to access certain cons or certain venues or whatever, it uh, really has been such a blessing um, for so many of us to be more prominent in that way and really have a voice, but at the same time, it's like this in-person interaction is still considered so key and it's made inaccessible for way more of us than we would like it to be. <laughs> and it, it does depend on your city. Joy just moved to Philadelphia, so I'm gonna ask her about that because in New York, um, a lot of the buildings are so old that they are not accessible. So when we'd have certain meetups, we had to make sure that it was a bar that either had a lift or you could actually wheel into uh, because a lot of them do not in New York. Um, how's Philadelphia? Well, Philadelphia is also full of a lot of old buildings, um, my apartment building being one of them. Um, so I live on the second floor, and it's like, if I'm having a bad pain day, tough. I still got to walk. Um, you know, if I have a friend um, who's coming over with a, a walker or a wheelchair, you know, we got to, you know, have some people to help them out. It's really... Um, I'd say a lot of Philadelphian buildings are grandfathered in. However, uh, just a few blocks from me, I, um, I work sometimes at HMS School for Children with Cerebral Palsy. So there's um, a lot of buildings that are just terrible, terrible for um, access for anyone other than who is fully abled. And then there's places like HMS where they are on the cutting edge of disability technology. And uh, I walk in there and I'm constantly amazed by the machinery and the special foam pieces that they have for physical therapy and for working atrophied muscles and so on. And it just blows my mind because um, this building is fully equipped, elevators everywhere, access ramps everywhere, um, with a staff that has such a low turnover rate, even among the people who are serving the food and doing the janitory staff because um, in contrast to so many of these places, which, you know, their accommodations aren't great, this place, they care, it's like a family, and they are at the very forefront of, of all of this uh, special needs care and technology, and it's amazing. How is the, the city of Philadelphia with parking? Because when I've been there, um, it's been a challenge to find <laughs> any parking for regular parking spaces, like my car, um, but my friend in New York, uh, has probably a shoebox full of New York City parking tickets because even with her handicap placard, they keep ticketing her. So, how, do you do you have a handicap placard? I do not. Okay. Um, it, there's there were a lot of aspects of the uh, bureaucracy that I didn't have the spoons to go through. If you guys, I'm sure some of us know uh, about the spoon theory and so on with managing your energy, uh, what limited energy you have and so on. So there are a lot of. Um, forms of accessibility that I could have gone for that I just, over the years, was unable to. Um, 
But yeah, Philadelphia is generally a nightmare for parking. I think you're going to find the handicapped parking only in parking lots, and there are so few of those because there is very limited space for anything in Philadelphia. You just build on top of what's already there. That's um, one of the reasons I think Jersey is better for business because our buildings have parking lots and not street parking or those random independent people who are trying to rent out their backyard um, where they will squish the cars that you can't even open your door um, and it's you know $40 a day. So that's, that's one of the reasons that I think New Jersey is actually way more accessible than the bigger cities that are you know on our uh, other sides of our rivers. And, and the stress level of uh, moving around and working in the bigger cities too and even going to them just for cons or you know for a day out just um, again makes it an extra challenge because whatever, you know, if, if you're managing your spoons, your limited energy, um, or if you have um, mental and emotional needs uh, or disorders that um, require a lowered amount of stress, it's like, too bad, buddy, you're on your own, you're in the city, nobody cares. And it's like really not, not great, but at the same time, it's like the opportunities, and that's why I moved there, and it's like, so, you know, it's a, it's a tough balancing act. The, the spoon theory, if you don't know what it is, uh, does anybody hear video game or game at all? Um, okay. Spoons are kind of like game points. So if you're going on your quest and you have 100 hit points, um, spoons are basically, well, when I take a shower, I have to use 20 hit points. And when I you know, cook dinner, then it's another 20 hit points. And eventually, you're out of hit points. So spoons are like, you know, it was, it, it was started because of that. It was, a, you know, a woman who had, you know, invisible disabilities. And she was describing them to a friend of hers. And she went and she gathered 15 spoons from the rest of the diner tables that were around. And she says, okay, I need this many to do this task. I need this many for this task. I need this many to do this task. And by, you know, the end of describing an average day, she's like, I had no spoons left. She's like, but then something special came up and I needed to, you know, run to the market. Well, I have to borrow one of tomorrow's spoons. That means tomorrow I'm going to be recovering for six hours. And so that's what the spoon theory is. And I think the website is, don't, you know, like, I don't look sick enough yeah, or something. Yeah, it's, it's butyoudontlooksick.com. Butyoudontlooksick.com. And the, uh, the writer of that has lupus. Which two of my friends have, I just found out. So, um, now with Joy's work, one of the things that she was talking about was uh, the Skin Wars series, and part of her art, and which is exceptionally cool, is she does body painting. So, um, while we're talking about how diverse disabilities are, how diverse are the body types that you get to work on? Unfortunately, not diverse enough. Um, on the main Skin Wars series, which I have not yet been on. Um, they usually have like one special episode that has body types that aren't, you know, very svelte young women. Um, where, um, in fact, in season three, they had an episode where it was breast cancer survivors and they painted on the survivors um, their personal story and made it sort of um, a statement. Um, but unfortunately, as much as I would love to have. Uh, a wider variety of models. The models that are generally hired for the events I've painted at conform pretty much to the pop culture media understanding of you know what is sexy. Um, however, something I also do is when I'm doing the event painting, once I'm done painting the models, I will often take walk-in commissions. 
And I love those not only because um, the models can be a bit used to the body painting. They're great pros and they know, for instance, not to lock their knees. I've had a model faint on me and that's what happens when you lock your knees and someone paints you for a couple hours. Um, but the people who are the walk-in commissions are people who gen generally, if they've had any paint on them, it's mostly face paint. It's not the high quality body paint. And you get to see them have this pleasure at being transformed or being decorated in a way that is unique to the night. And their body types are totally diverse and I love it. I, I actually figure model as, as well. So it's hard to you know imagine when you, you know, when you look at somebody like me and I get to write, I'm a model on my business card, it's true. Um, and part of that is really physically demanding, and you might not think of that by looking at it. If you've ever seen somebody getting their portrait painted, you think, oh, well, they just had to sit there. It's like, okay, but you have to sit there and not move. And depending on your painter, um, it could, you know, I, I generally work for tw 20 minutes and then take a break to stretch, and then 20 minutes and take a break to stretch. And I've done things where it's the same exact pose so many weeks in a row, um, and it's exhausting. So with a, an average figure drawing class, it's different because it's not paint. So I don't, you know, they aren't, they aren't working with just one thing. Like if you're doing a painting, you know that's gonna be a dedicated amount of days. Um, but at least with drawing, uh, we can do like quick sketches that are a minute, we can do quick sketches that are 10 minutes, and then we can do sketches that are, you know, 45 minutes, take a break, do another 45 minutes. And you'd be surprised how painful it is to lay in one place and not move. Because when you're laying in bed, you move your feet, you move your knees, your back starts to hurt, so you shift your hips. Well, it's like if I'm laying in one spot, I know my right hip will hurt because my right hip always hurts. So, um, and I have scoliosis, so I tend to lean to the right anyway. But um, uh, when you've been in the world of art, your perception of what bodies should do will completely change and that's why I personally love being around artists even though I'm a writer so I have really nothing to do with bodies except to study them but artists on the other hand they have a whole different perspective and they will make anybody feel like a work of art so even though joy actually transforms them by painting on them whether you've been turned into a sketch or a sculpture or a great photograph they will they will, they will take that burden of you feeling different off of you and celebrate it instead. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, you, you got to say that you grew up around like hippie parents and how wonderful it is. So that's a really different life than what I have. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, every, everyone's got those burdens and you know, none of us, none of us lacks baggage. So definitely, um, and the, um, there's a lot of transformative aspect in a lot of forms of art um, you know, uh, one of the things that just appeals to me so much about comics is that you can put yourself into the character's shoes and live these, you know, incredible opportunities and fantasies that you may not have the opportunity to in real life. Um, and body painting is, um, I would say, even even a step beyond that because then you really, what, what you've become, you physically embody the work of art and the difference between how the, the models feel about their bodies when they're just in the pasties and or you know for a walk-in commission just showing me their arm and like oh I'm so sorry I'm a little sweaty and then the difference between that and when they're fully painted and just living in the moment and fully enjoying being themselves because if they weren't who they were they wouldn't be this incredible piece of art um, 
is, is just so wonderful and it's such an empathetic um, medium because you're, when you're working that closely with someone, uh, you're gonna pick up on what they're feeling and they're gonna pick up on what you're feeling, which is also a big thing about taking care of my own mental health because if I'm coming into a painting and I'm having a rough day, they're gonna pick up on it. Uh, and that's happened sometimes. And so uh, when it does, often, you know, I'll have to just like sit with them and be like, okay, so I'm having a time. I just want you to be aware of this, but we're gonna make this awesome and have a lot of fun together. That's definitely true because I know that there were um, certain sessions where I had where I was in so much pain and I was miserable or like when my, my dad was going through cancer, I was like sitting there and crying while people were trying to paint me or pastels or whatever they were using. And it's like a bad day is a bad day. And, you know, sometimes you're, you know, it's like you want to be beautiful, but it's just going to be resting bitch face day for that particular session and you can't help it. But, um, you know, being in pain certainly sucks. I've had several sessions where I've had to take Vicodin to get through my session. And, it, and again, it looks like it's not a physical job, but it's very, very physical. Um, did you ever have an issue with, like, medication affecting your creativity? Um, def uh, definitely with my mental capacity um, or with the pain levels, for that matter. Um, if I'm having a bad pain day, I'm fuzzy in the head. Um, I've got the fog going on, and uh, so my concepts and compositions and executions aren't going to be as tight because I'm not as focused. Um, same with the medication where, you know, the medication might be great for my body, but uh, if it gives me that fog, I'm not going to be as focused. Um, and then there's days like today where I packed in a rush and I didn't bring, like, my Icy Hot for my back or, you know, any of the medications I might take for a long day walking the con floor in friggin' sandals because I did not plan that well. And so I'm probably gonna go around to the tables of a few people I know and be like, hey buddy, so do you have any aspirin? Like, so again, uh, which seems minor, um, especially considering um, the level of disability that I came from and the level of accommodations where I would have to pack a second bag for my TENS unit, for all my medications, for ace bandages, hot pads, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it still means time is taken away from the things I should or would be doing or want to be doing to go like search out and do my little scavenger hunt to see what over the counters people have, which again, it's an, it's an over the counter. So that's, you know, that takes care of some of it. One of the things that's really common in the world of art, and I'm sure it happens in every industry too, but um, I guess because I'm just around so many art people, we compare ourselves to everybody else's success. Like there was, and I, I'm really sorry that I forget his name, but there was a, a convention where there was somebody working with, um, he had to use the, his mouth with, for the, his, to hold his paintbrush. And so of course there was a crowd around him watching this remarkable, most amazing thing. And I think his comic book came out last year. And it's really hard to look at that and say, and these were like masterpieces. I mean, the, the most unbelievable talent. And stories like Frank Frazetta, who's like, you know, one of my icons. Frank had a, a stroke and had to learn to draw with his uh, left hand. And, and of course, because he's Frank Frazetta, he was just as amazing. And it took him time, but he taught himself how to do it. And I grew up, because I'm a weirdo kid, I grew up practicing with my left hand uh, in 
writing in case my arm got chopped off. I don't know why, but that was in, the, in my head as like a, just a weird kid thing, like Wednesday Adams. Um, so it, it's, you have, to, you have to not compare yourself to those wonderful successes and say, well, you know, um, you know just because so-and-so is using the paintbrush in his mouth, um, you know, I, I don't. I still don't have to. I don't have to be that that good, or you know, maybe my day isn't that great today. Whatever it is, just stop comparing yourself to other people. There's actually um, an art program technology that I'm really excited about for um, adaptive art, which is um, and as an artist and as people working in the arts, or really, you know, there's so many jobs that require your eyes, that require your hands, and so it's a terrifying thought to. Um, lose further mobility than what we might have at this moment. And um, I've, I've been watching videos of there's, um, there was a guy that had a stroke and is now making digital art with, um, there's a, he has a eye tracker camera um, on his computer and it, he can use his eye as the cursor and still create art with, um, you know, fairly uh, severe paralysis. And it's like, seeing that and seeing that this adaptive program exists like took took some of the fear away because it's like okay you know there's there's people out there that care there's engineers and software programmers and companies that are making it possible for all of us at any level um i've also worked as uh, an adaptive music therapist and so there's so many incredible technologies for creating music no matter um, what level of functioning you are, there's just, and I, I feel really lucky to have seen it too, and to know this stuff is out there, and you know have have some of that fear taken away because it's like okay, so whatever happens, those of us that just have that need to express ourselves no matter what are going to have that possible for us no matter what. And you know, of course, hey, we live in the you know the age of the internet, which is fantastic because I wrote a character. Um, I didn't explain anything about his history of why he had a prosthetic leg, just that it existed, just that that was there. So I had to do some research about rock climbing and and looking up adaptive gear. And um, one of the things that it is about, you know, creating characters. You know, like people talk about, well, how do you write female characters? How do you write transgender characters? Well, how do you write handicapped characters? And it's like, well, you know, you have to write them as people. That's really the secret. And just do some research. So um, so I had this man, you know, in this, you know, hunting lodge kind of setting. And he was, a, you know, an avid rock climber. And it was just one of those things where it wasn't going to be about him there's no backstory. You don't need to know if he was lost his leg in Desert Storm. Like you just you don't need to know any of that because it's not part of what that book is about. That book is. I mean, he's actually a bad guy. Um, but um, but you just you have to treat it well. And I know that um, Guardians of the Galaxy I think upset a lot of people when um, Rocker Raccoon, who was like my favorite, um, steals a prosthetic limb from somebody and he says that he needs it to go build. You know one of his weapons, because that's what he does. And then he just, it actually turned out that it was just a joke that he didn't need and just wanted to take away from the person. That upset so many people. I mean, I'm on Twitter all the time, so if you're not a Twitter person, maybe you don't get into these kind of conversations. But um, I was, you know, 
I wasn't thinking of it when I sat through that movie, and then when I got out of the movie and saw all the tweets, I'm like, oh no, what happened? Well, that's um, that's an interesting thing because like um, the disabled community historically has not been well served by popular fiction, um, you know, and to you know there there are a lot of disabled villains, and um, to take that extra effort to just be informed about, you know, even if you're not putting it in the story, be informed about, you know, have friends where you can ask um, about amputation and have people tell you and give you the real experience. So even if it doesn't wind up in the end of the story, you can write um, your characters with, you know, awareness and sensitivity is so necessary. And, you know, I, I kind of love the kind of pushback that Twitter has. I mean, they can definitely dogpile on people, not always for the greatest reasons. Right. But um, the fact that the internet has somewhat leveled the playing field in giving more of us a voice. That like, never send death to. threats to the writers. <laughs> yes. Please. Please no never threats. send death threats to the writers um, when something's handled badly. Because there are times when they will just simply apologize and course correct and say that they've learned and they won't do it again, like what happened with um, uh, an issue with Batgirl. Uh, the team was amazing. But um, with a different case with Batgirl, when they took her out of her wheelchair and made her Batgirl again, the backlash of that affected the entire comics community because she had spent more years as Oracle in a wheelchair being a computer genius than she had as Batgirl because there are, there are several characters who have been, been Batgirl if you didn't know. Um, so when when Barbara was taking out of her wheelchair after that long and really no clear explanation other than it's comics so we kind of have to pretend it didn't really happen or just they'll refer to it as you know well you know like when I was in my chair. So I'm like, they, like they really gloss over and don't explain the miraculousness of how she got out. Like um, uh, War Machine from Iron Man now is paralyzed. Well, they have, you know, he, he has a gigantic suit that lets him fly. So you, do you really think he's going to have a hard time building prosthetics? No. But they have to, you have to still make it relatable. So when you have a comic book character in a chair or with a device, um, it needs to be handled respectfully, which is why I know um, Elsa, who's not here, hates Daredevil with a fiery passion, and she's given two-hour lectures on how she hates Daredevil so much um, because they treat his blindness as a superpower itself instead of a character who happens to be blind. Um, so, uh, which leads me to talking about cosplay. Um, I don't know, did you have cosplay? Uh, yes, um, I've had my purple hair for about a year, so of course last last Halloween I had to be animated Teen Titans Raven. Fantastic. Uh, same, similar jewel. Yeah, you know? <laughs> very similar. Um, one of the things that Elsa has blogged about, um, because she has a, occasionally, you know, uses a white cane or a wheelchair, and um, is the insensitivity and offense that comes across when cosplayers use mobility aids or any handicapped devices as a cosplay prop. Um, I, I've seen people who actually use wheelchairs be oracle for cosplay because it's something they can celebrate and something they can do where they work their wheelchairs like um, some of them have really elaborate things like one of them was turned into a dragon. I mean really elaborate things to incorporate their mobility devices into their cosplay. Um, 
But on the other hand, if you're dressing as Matt Murdock and you're carrying a white cane and you actually are able to see, it sends the wrong signal that um, the people around you are gonna see that white cane and they don't know whether you need it or not. So then when they actually do see somebody else carrying a white cane who actually needs it, they are less likely to show the sensitivity that they need to, like, you know, asking if they need any help or if they, you know, can show them to their seat. Whatever, you know, whatever you would do in, instead. Um, and there's a lot of Daredevil cosplayers now because of the show. So that's, um, that's definitely one of the things that I've seen much more of. Uh, and I and I did have a friend who dressed as Oracle, and she was very able-bodied, and she used a wheelchair. And um, it's just one of those things where the disabled community really doesn't want you to do that. If you do it and you do it for a photo shoot, that's one thing. But then do not like use it as an assisted device around the convention. And um, death threats aside, though, like the con the kind of conversation that's coming out of this, and the kind of conversations that Elsa's having, or uh, comics writers like Gail Simone, who uh, talks to a lot of her followers and gets their personal experiences about this, so she knows how to write uh, people with different needs with care, um, is fantastic. And you know, uh, I none of us are fans of the stuff that's causing the conversations. None of us are fans of the you know the mistreatment and the disrespect and so on. But the fact that we can start talking about this and people from everywhere with everything can start to really contribute and get these um, get this information and their personal experience to the eyes and the ears of the people who are already in the industry creating these stories is just such such a blessing. Well, and it, um, whether it's uh, writing and you need to do research or whether it's from the perspective of an artist who needs to draw something, you need to be able to do your research because they're, um, Jill Pantosi is a friend of mine and she made a, a, an article a couple of years ago now where she pointed out the difference in wheelchairs because um, there's different kinds of wheelchairs in this audience right now. But um, like she uses a scooter and then there are the kind with the, the regular wheelchairs where somebody has to push you and then there's the kind with the really low back with the bigger wheels. Um, there are so many different kinds and you need to know what your character needs. So if the artist and the writer are not communicating enough to have that part of the story, then there's something missing. And most of the time we like to leave things up to the artist and say, you know, it's your vision, you're the visual part of this, so you make it happen. But um, when it comes to you know, making sure that that's accurate in a comic book, it's fantastic when the creators will actually not say like, I guess it depends on how you give the feedback. Like don't give angry feedback, just say, hey, by the way, that wheelchair was completely wrong for what, you know, for this story. Um, if you explain it to them, they can usually be really receptive about making the change. So um, I don't know if you, if you've ever had to draw anything like that where you needed to. I know that you talked about it like you'll know if a guitar is drawn, drawn incorrectly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. uh, yeah, I've, I've definitely done my research on mobility aids and um, something that I really try to do differently to define my own penciling and inking style is crowd scenes. And I really, um, crowd scenes, I think um, there are a lot of artists who will just go on default mode and you know everyone kind of looks, has a, the same body the same type, everyone is white in the crowd whatever, and I actually try to um, make the crowds that reflect my reality, and um, 
so you know crowds full of all kinds of people so I definitely um, I love my research um, it's it's a great way to procrastinate too but it's also you know just um, I, I want my art to demonstrate that I care and um, one of the ways you can do that and you, you can tell a story is done with care is by going out and doing this research so I've definitely and I you know I've been around uh, a lot of these mobility devices and uh, ask a lot of questions so you know definitely um, done done a lot of that <laughs> right and with um, with mental health uh, Jessica Jones was like the most recent thing I can think of where they really address PTSD and uh, you mentioned Gail Simone Gail Simone wrote Oracle and Batgirl so um, I know that she did thorough research in the sense where she interviewed uh, Drea Letamenti who I've also interviewed and Drea actually appears as Batgirl's therapist because that's actually what Drea does, like for a living. She, I think she mostly works with veterans. But um, you know, when it came time to saying, "Hey, or, you know, what happened to Barbara Gordon was she got shot, and that's how she ended up in the wheelchair." So she had PTSD also. So it wasn't like, "Oh, we just need to address the wheelchair issue. We need to address her mental health too." And more creators are taking that into account, and they're doing it much more respectfully, even if it's something that like an ugly condition like addiction like you know it's okay to talk about addiction um, if it's like Jessica Jones is a raging drunk like she's such an uh, she's just such an unlikable character um, but you kind of root for her in the end after you hear like all the garbage she's been through and and with um with all of the um, uh, Jessica Jones seems like another example of this sea change where it's finally in our fiction being okay to talk about trauma and what comes after trauma. Right, because, I mean, if uh, if you're as old as I am and you remember things uh, <laughs> of like that had World War II vets in them, they didn't talk about shell shock when they got back. And uh, I believe the stat I read yesterday was veterans are six times more likely to try and take their lives. So um, it's definitely, there's more awareness. I don't know if it's any better in stopping it, though. Um, you know, that's, I don't know if the government's actually going to address that. They put aside, like, something like uh, billions of dollars for mental health, and who knows what that goes into. But I, I strongly believe that fiction changes the world, and the stories we tell ourselves help shape us for now and in the future. And um, to have stories now that reflect that and to have characters now that are made more human by having experienced trauma and we actually see them deal with it rather than being, oh, well, they're weak for, you know, having a reaction to trauma rather than just powering yeah. through it. Like, I love that Tony Stark had a panic attack in his armor. First of all, it's claustrophobic to be in, in something like that. And then uh, because of everything he was through, um, you know, out in the desert and... Uh, you know, obviously, as a hero fighting bad guys, they gave Tony Stark PTSD, and I'm assuming they're going to get to the demon in the bottle story where he becomes an alcoholic, but um, there were at least sort of signs of that in the movies where he was starting to just be a jerk and drinking too much. Um, with Jessica Jones, it's like very clear. She's always has a bottle. And with these, with these heroes that embody some of our fantasies and embody some of the things or some of the ideals that we want to aspire to, it makes it so we can reach that that ideal more easily. You know, if we see that, okay, they struggle too. They weren't just born perfect. Yeah. Um, and Tony Stark might have billions of dollars, and um, and he still has problems. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things. 
but um, it does remind me about being in, in the armor, which to me sounds claustrophobic. One of the times I was modeling for a fashion show, there were masks involved. So at least the designer had the courtesy to ask every one of the models if they were comfortable in a mask. Because um, there were different kinds that were more like headpieces, and then there were ones that were much more covered. So um, there was actually somebody who couldn't. She, had to, she could not wear the mask. Um, but when it comes to things like costuming like that, a friend of mine uh, that I interviewed on, on Vodka O'Clock talked about the reason he dressed as Batman. He felt he has so much social anxiety and in going into crowds, but when he puts on a Batman cowl, there's first of all, it's kind of Kevlar-like with the whole suit to begin with, and then there's a cape. But with his face, that covered, he felt protected. And it's sort of like those, um, what do they call them, thunder blankets that you put on dogs? Like it's something to calm a dog down because of thunder. So they're the, starting the to thunder shirts. Thunder shirt. <laughs> yeah. So like his Batman armor was his thunder shirt, and it helped him get through conventions. And he was much more able to handle his, his anxiety with that. And it's, it's interesting that you mention um, your comfort being addressed as a model, because that's something that's not uh, as widespread as it should be. I know in body painting. Um, I'm building a reputation for treating my models unusually well because I'm pretty empathetic with the fact that they tire out about as quickly as I do. And so I'm always asking them, hey, you doing okay? You need to sit down, like you wanna take a break? Uh, you need something to drink? Like we always have a bottle of water nearby. There's always little snacks and so on. Um, if it's too cold, because I mean, if you're in your underwear or less, that's a definite consideration. I mean, I'm at least wearing you know, some clothes when I'm painting. Um, but uh, I know that there's a similar situation like that with both art modeling and fashion modeling where some people take it into account, um, but not enough. Yeah, there are times when I've had to have two or three space heaters on me just from the, um, because one of the schools that I worked in was really, really an old building and their heat was out for an entire year because um, nobody puts money into arts. So, uh, so they struggled without a furnace for a year. So we just ran off space heaters and the you know all of the artists would come in kind of bundled up and i was naked with space heaters and you know moving around for doing the faster poses i was actually really warmed up but then the second i had to do the longer poses just sitting there i was freezing um but you get through it so that's um yeah so modeling cosplay those they all have very individual approaches to them and i know that you you know, said on the show last time was that pain is a very individual experience. Like what I call, like my PMS can send me to attend like real fast without a problem. Getting doctors to believe that has never happened and I'm over 40 and they will never, you know, they're, first of all, all they wanna do is surgery. They don't wanna like treat anything. Um, so issues with the healthcare system yeah. is a whole different discussion. But um, yeah, pain is such an individual experience and um, yeah. You know, to the, the fact that our, you know, culture treats it like one thing should be a blanket panacea for everyone, and this should work for everyone, and if you're not doing this, this, and this, then it's on you, and they don't, they don't consider the circumstances that you ne even need to get to that, that, and that. Like, when I started my physical therapy regimen, um, I had to take baby steps and do it, you know, very, very gradually to get to the point where I can actually go to the gym and use some gym equipment, because someone who's just out of shape and wants to start working out is starting at zero. I'm starting at way below zero. Um, so I just, I just lost what tangent I'm going on. 
but well, yeah, well, yeah, the pain scale. Like my pain, pain scale, scale yeah. my ten, can, you know, could yeah. be a six for you if you're used to right. it and you or, can handle it. Or like, your ten I, has different effects on you. Right. Or you're going to show your ten differently. Yeah. Or you know, my my ten. You know, it's it's so individual, and we we don't have a system that accommodates for that yet, and we don't have uh, the way we're teaching our medical professionals. Except for in a very few uh, exceptions, I'm going to promote HMS here again because I just think they're amazing. Um, you know, the way we're teaching most of our medical professionals is not to respect the individuality of pain and the individuality of the therapies and needs that we have. Yeah, I think they assume that bodies that can that have the ability to go through childbirth can handle anything. It's like no. Yeah, and and the fact that most um, medication are tested on a mainly white population, on a mainly male population. Male population, even uh, female drugs. going. going. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The clinical trials are so incredibly biased, yeah, and the FDA is yeah, just... It's young, white, college-age men. Yeah. That's, that's what they have access I had, to. I, had, I took a course on clinical trials and was astonished to hear that, you know, how much stuff is all drug-tested on healthy white males. So... Um, does anybody have any questions for us, you know, before we there's, go? There's actually one thing I'd like to address. Sure. Um, because we're talking about physical and mental health um, and maintaining an arts career. And um, that is that most jobs, if you had them long enough, are going to destroy your body in some way. Um, and there's, I don't see a lot of awareness or conversation about the individual way that working in the arts and entertainment industry destroys your body. And um, we were having a little conversation before the panel started about, um, with, with Elsa dropping out, uh, we were talking to a few people about, hey, would you like to join our panel? We have a slot. And uh, one of my friends out there made a joke that, oh yeah, you could, you could pretty much talk to any artist at this con and they would be qualified to speak about working with like special needs or disability. Because um, so many, if they didn't start, I mean, even if they started their work fully abled, um, for instance, uh, a lot of artists, a lot of comic artists in particular, after a couple decades of bending over at an art desk, are going to have severe back problems. I know like one professional inker who doesn't have severe back problems, um, and of course their understanding of it is going to be different because it didn't come from necessarily the places that those of us who started out with disability or special needs comes from. So, so it's but, new to them, and, and part of that yeah. challenge is. Um, you know, we can talk about self-care if you want, but the fact that freelancers and pretty much most people nowadays are responsible for their own health insurance and health coverage, so staying healthy is your job. Yeah, like but it's literally your job as a human being in America to but stay it's, healthy. It's not really recognized or addressed yeah. as um, what what it's actually going to do to you and what you actually need to do to stay healthy. Like self care seems to be a pretty individual journey for every one of us because we're not. I mean, beyond the basics, like you're a bad person if you don't brush your teeth this many times a day. Like we're we're not really taught to like think about and respond to our own needs and gauge our own bodies and and mental health and reactions. What um, self-care routines do you have? Because oh. like for, <laughs> mentally for me, I hide alone usually and do nothing but marathon my favorite TV shows and I will mix a cocktail. Um, if I am in a public place, I have been known to run and hide in closets. I don't care what the facility is. Um, I've been in bar closets. I've been in convention closets. Like I've just, I, I mean, whatever it takes to get me away from the immediate surroundings um, and you know Vicodin is a godsend but um, 
with being with freelancing at least I'm way I'm I'm home almost all of them. like I this is I'm out of my house you guys have no idea how rare this is um, I'm out of my house and I'm away from my cat when my my cat died in the winter I didn't know what I was gonna do because she was my companion and she wasn't like a certified companion animal or anything but she slept on my desk while I wrote all day and suddenly my partner was not there anymore so um, you know the journey of just finding another cat to to give me because I stop several times a day now because he's the one I have now he's young and he's energetic and he requires play so like him existing in my house makes me get away from my desk and guarantees that I'm going to take breaks because I used to be in IT we never left our desks for any reason at all except pizza so um, you were in your cubicle surrounded by those gray padded things which I mean mental hospitals give you bigger rooms so um, you know freelancing or being in a cubicle whatever your job is it, you, you still need to take care of yourself. So self-care is now finally a thing. There's actually, if you are on Twitter, Spoonie Speak is a hashtag. Oh, so that. you can follow like Spoonie Speak or Spoonie Chat. Um, so I don't know if you, that's if you oh, have yeah. self-care tips. <laughs> but my self-care tips are all very, very, it's self-care. So it's supposed to be selfish. That's what I do. Well, um, I'm speaking generally about like giving giving advice and giving tips is always something I'm really hesitant about because again I feel very strongly that pain and health is such an individual journey that if I say something works for me there is zero guarantee that it's going to work for you too but um, my health care my self-health care takes about as much time as a part-time job um, this is a big part of why I went into freelancing I know we have at least one other guest here uh, who chose freelancing um, because it's a flexible uh, job, because you can move things around to meet your needs, and as long as you hit your deadline, that's okay. Um, my self-care, um, you know, frequent physical therapy and exercise, which I feel very for fortunate to have the ability to do, because that was, for 12 years, that was not the case. Um, you know, I, I make a point of taking long, hot baths with Epsom salts, and uh, for a mental uh, health care, afterwards I will put on moisturizer and try to touch um, every part of my body that I am physically uh, able to in a pain-free way to familiarize myself with my body, which I find really helps. Um, I definitely have downtime where I will just go into my room, close the door, and watch something turn off my brain. Um, you know, let's see. Uh, you know, uh, there's friends, friendship and social stuff helps, but I have to be very careful about how I use it. Um, I know a lot of people classify themselves as extroverts or introverts. I consider myself an ambivert, where uh, social time can both give me energy and take it away. Alone time can both give me energy and take it away. So uh, talking to friends can be really good for the soul, but sometimes all I'm capable of is talking to them uh, online. Um, and sometimes I actually have the energy to hang out in person, but it's I have to be very careful. I'm always watching my gauge. I'm always watching my energy um, and counting how many spoons I have left for the day um, and doing what I can to, um, you know, replenish them if, I'm, if I have that capability of that day or save them for what's really necessary. Um, I, I have um, a certified um, companion animal. Uh, I have a little one-eyed pug. And so I try to spend a lot of time with her. Um, 
you know, I've, I've read all sorts of things about how like petting a dog for, or an animal for like five minutes will lower your blood pressure. So I try to do those little things. Um, you know, uh, I also try to cook a lot of my own food because that's a mental health thing for me. It also takes some spoons away sometimes and it also, uh, you know, takes time out of my day where if I'm on deadline um, and I really need to finish a page, it's like, okay, time to like go to the microwave or the toaster or something. But um, for my personal needs, I've found having home cooked food that's made exactly the way I like it um, really helps and gives, sometimes it even gives me some extra spoons. And I have a bag full of home cooked food today. I'm not eating anything off the vendor floor. It's all my own stuff and I'm very happy about it. Awesome. Whereas I packed garbage <laughs> I, because I don't usually like to eat when I'm out because it's hard to find anything. But I know that, you know, at least when we leave here, I can go get a good dinner. So I packed vegan cookies for my lunch. Um, but, you know, it's enough calories that I won't pass out, which is helpful. Um, but uh, so Twitter is a great resource if you, uh, like I said, if you look up if you follow hashtags and do those fun things, like Spoonie Speak is like once a week. Spoonie Speak. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, uh, but you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Elizabeth Amber on Twitter. My website is amberonmass.com. I have a Patreon. Um, I, I believe Elsa has a Patreon too, if you look her up. Her Twitter is snarkbat, and she writes for Feminist Sonar. So that's where you can find information about when she talks about things like why she hates Daredevil. Um, so my, my Twitter is Joy Tawny. Um, my main art blog is Kinetic Novels. That's K-I-N-E-T-I-C, novels, one word, kinetic novels, uh, dot tumblr.com. I'm working on my website. Keep an eye out for me uh, on Skin Wars Fresh Paint. Does anybody have any questions before we head out? On characters or on our actual lives, whatever you want to talk about. We have time. Nobody's kicked us out yet. Yeah. We have four minutes. <laughs> and you know, um, another self-care thing is after this, because I've had a very rough couple weeks, um, and I've been overworking myself. Another self-care thing that um, I do is I try to take at least one day to do nothing every week. Because um, as an artist, I can be a little funny about, oh, well, it's my day off, but I'm going to spend six hours on this painting. Um, so I try to make at least one day every week sacred for no work. And I will, anyone who tries to take that day away from me, I'm like, sorry, buddy, like, we can't. Um, and after this panel, I'm probably going to find a quiet place and just hang out for a few minutes and maybe go outside where it's a little less freezing. Uh, yeah. And just, and just chill and, like, get... I was going to say, at, at least this panel, know. at least this uh, convention center has places where you can sit. That's another problem yeah. with attending conventions like New York yeah. is there's no place for you to sit. Yeah. So um, here, whether you're here or if you're actually in any of the rinks where they have bleachers, you can sit and you can rest. Um, last year, because I wasn't sure uh, if they had ele uh, any kind of elevator access, Dave told me that, yes, they do. So if you like a quiet area, you can actually go in that section, like the nosebleed section of the seats where um, like broadcasters go and stuff for the games, you can, there actually are elevators to get up to those sections if you can't walk up all those, you know, the bleacher steps, because those are a lot of steps. Um, but it's usually like really quiet up there. I don't know if it's 
warm, <laughs> but I'd rather be I'd rather be like this and where it's you know like comfortable seventies instead of the hundred and ten it is outside or whatever. Well, you're not in the tank, so yeah. So, so <laughs> but I'm going to step outside for yeah. A minute you'll warm up. Yeah, look look at some green things that I don't always see in the city, and just you know ah ah yes, watch the uh, stream of attendees come in and say hello. Yes, I am one of the people you're here to see today. You know, but yes. mostly keep to myself. Go sit okay. in the car. So he writes. Okay. Um, my my first writing that I had any kind of, I guess, public success with right. was um, I took online classes for writing comics. Through it was called Comics Experience, and um, what's really helpful about that is there's um, there's writing workshops and art and art classes online, but there's also just an actual monthly workshop. So if you're not in a specific meetup for the lessons part, what they call the workshop itself is a bunch of people who have paid to all be together. Um, you don't have to then for the workshop you don't have to be like logged on at a certain time whereas for the classes you do and you put up your scripts you learn how to format scripts so that because writing a script is really different than writing a novel writing is writing a script is basically directions to the artist so um, if I were to describe this I would say you know I would say okay it's a you know it's a conference room there's six rows of chairs and there's two people sitting at the you know up at microphones and some you know so it's just directions to the artist so that gets put up and people help critique it and they help you make it better and then um, it's up to you if you do anything with your work what when I took the intro to comic book writing class we actually partnered up we found artists and we put out an anthology book and we're able to sell it. I mean, we didn't make any profit off of it because it cost so much money to print things, but um, but that was something that we just did as a group was we made a, an anthology out of it. And from there, then at least it networked uh, me into talking to other people, and I was able to pitch to some smaller press things, or like I usually end up doing charity books. So um, even my prose short story that's in Protectors Volume Two, which is a gigantic book um, with people like Joyce Carol Oates. I mean, like Harlan Ellison is in this book, and I had the, the pleasure of you know seeing my name like ten, 10 spaces down from Harlan Ellison. Um, and it's just uh, from networking opportunities. Um, I do, uh, you know, I tend to be around crime writers, so like Mystery Writers of America, and um, the New York chapter actually covers like six states, I think. So Mystery Writers of America is always doing lectures and giving you opportunities to meet up in person. Um, but comic stuff, specifically like comics experience, there's comic book school is another one. And I think there's a, well, if you're an artist and you live here, then by all means, the Kubert School is the best thing you will ever attend. Um, so uh, with that anthology, did that was that a step towards... Um, the, the current success that you're having? like Yeah, that, that was first... literally the first thing that I ever did that I got to see printed and got to hold up and say, look, this is something I did. 
that, that yeah. got the whole thing rolling. That got the whole thing rolling. <laughs> because, I mean, I otherwise, if you're just kind of doing it and you don't know anybody, it feels impossible. You know, you're just kind of... Artists are a little bit different because you have something that you can go to somebody's table and say, do you mind looking at this? As a writer, you can't do that because it takes too much time. It takes too much time. Like, I have little jump drives that actually have samples of my writing on. Hmm. So that if I think that I'm going to meet a publisher or an editor, I can be like, here, <laughs> you know? And yeah, um, I don't have an agent. I've, I've pitched, I've submitted, I've done the query thing, and I still don't have an agent. Um, so my, my novels are self, self-published, um, which is a great thing about you know, the internet these days is that you have access to that. Uh, some people do really like thorough self-publishing where they still pay thousands of dollars for editors um, because nowadays, that used to be something that a publishing house did for you, and nowadays it's not. And uh, something that's so awesome now is that you can, you can sustain yourself professionally with direct market self-publishing as, as well as, at least as well, really, as uh, someone who has you know, an agency and an editor and works with a certain publishing house, like the the leveling the playing field that some of the internet services have done, especially to, to those of us that have a hard time with the gatekeepers, because right. it is slightly easier as an artist, but man, uh, I mean, especially with, you know, because comics are cool right now, so everyone, everyone wants to be a comic artist. Yeah, you know what, <laughs> what drives me absolutely crazy is when I've actually heard men in the comics business say, that a woman is only successful because of who she's married to. And it's infuriating, like, hey, maybe they met because they have things in common, like comics. You know, like maybe they started talking because they met at a job, or maybe they like each other's work. Or one thing leads, you know, it's like, there are an infinite number of ways that you can get these power couples in comics. And then to say, well, the only reason she was given a break is because of who she's married to. That's more likely than, oh, the only reason she's any good is because she's not good, but it's really her husband. And it's like, try telling Louise Simonson that, and I want to see her bitch slap you in the face. Yeah. Um, like, <laughs> you just, you can't, you, you know, networking, whether you're a couple or not, networking is going to be the thing. But somebody else has to open that door and help you get that big break. Um, you know, I don't have a big break. I'm trying to, you know, I, I have run a Patreon. It's enough to, you know, basically help pay for a couple of my bills. But, um, you know, other people are doing great on Patreon. But you will also learn to barter a lot. Like, my friends and I will read each other's manuscripts so that we help each other copy edit and do, like, you know, more thorough editing, like plot editing and stuff like that. Um, the person who did the cover of my book is a great friend of mine because, you know, that's the sort of thing that, that we do. It's like, you know, he's like, well, you promote my work all the time, and I promote his work endlessly because I adore it. So it's, that's, that's, that's how you get it. That's things, though, is that, you know, um, one successful piece, isn't, even though it's a step in the right direction and you're building your foundation that you're going to build the rest of your career on, it isn't necessarily anyone's big break anymore. Um, Valentine Delandro, who's illustrating Bitch Planet, which is... My favorite book. Amazing, yeah, just go out and buy it. But anyway... Um, he uh, has said that it's not about breaking into comics anymore. It's about breaking in again and again and again and again. Yeah. And um, you can see that with us, where we've had some successes and we have some upcoming successes and so on. 
but um, you know, while you're still in the stage of establishing your brand, it is uh, the truism about comics being a seven to ten year waiting line, as it is in a lot of arts and entertainment industry stuff, um, has absolutely proved true. Where you know we're building our success, but it's not going to be one key pivot moment with one key project that we did. It's it's got to be the accumulation of the whole thing. But we're also examples that if you keep at the grind, you can you can do it, even if you know, you're, you're not necessarily a, a comic superstar yet. Right. But <laughs> yet. A lot of people have day jobs. Most people yeah. still have day jobs. Yeah. yeah. So, but it's, it's possible and it's sustainable and it's a tough world out there. And you have to be uh, a little obsessed and a little bit of a workaholic. Uh, but that's true of all freelancing. Right. So, so um, you know, it depends on if you if you like taking classes, I love taking classes, it makes me get stuff done. So um, I, you know, I had one of the best times possible by taking class and the fact that it was online and I could sit in my pajamas with my, you know, headphones and listen to people who have been making comics for 25 and 30 years tell me how to do it was like, you know, an amazing opportunity. And just, um, you know, if, if any of you guys are you know, I know we have at least one person in the arts and entertainment industry in this crowd, but um, if any of you guys are looking in that direction and looking to these kinds of answers for your next step, just don't give up. You know, it doesn't matter if, you know, if your hero looks at your work or reads your work and tells you it's crap, don't listen to them, don't give up. You're making something that you want it to exist because you haven't seen it in the world yet and you need this thing to exist in the world. And there are so many people out there just like you. And there are, um, there's uh, a theory now about as, um, as a person in the arts and entertainment industry, all you need is a thousand true fans. And I mean, it's a grind to get that thousand true fans. I don't have it yet. I don't have it. <laughs> but, you know, if you have a thousand people and you can find that thousand people online, thank goodness, um, who will buy anything you make, you can you can make it and just because you know everyone has rough circumstances we were talking about trauma earlier i'm sure everyone in this room has experienced trauma and is going through some stuff but don't stop and it's like if you're one of those people that just has to make things and just has to bring what is inside of you out into this world don't stop yeah so thank you so much for coming and being here i really appreciate it and thank you to joy for making the trip out thank you amber for inviting me all right Enjoy the rest of your show. Have a great time, guys.